You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Hey everyone, it's Brian here, and we have a special edition of Experiencing Data today. Today, we're going to be talking to Carl Hoffman, who's the CEO of Basis Technology. Carl is not necessarily a traditional, what I would call data product manager or someone working in that in the field of creating custom decision support tools. He is an expert in text analytics, and specifically, Basis Technology focuses on entity resolution and resolving entities across different languages. So if your product or service or your software tool that you're using is going to be dealing with inputs and outputs or search with multiple languages, I think you're going to find my chat with Carl really informative. So without further ado, here's my chat with Carl Hoffman. All right, welcome back to Experiencing Data. Today, I'm happy to have Carl Hoffman on the line, the CEO of Basis Technology based out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. How's it going, Carl? Great. Good to talk to you, Brian. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm excited about this episode. It's a little bit different because Basis Tech primarily focuses on providing text analytics more as a service as opposed to a data product. But there are obviously some user experience ramifications on the downstream side of you know, companies and software and services that are leveraging some of your technology. So can you tell people a little bit about the technology of Basis and, and what you guys do? There are many companies who are in the business of extracting actionable information from large amounts of dirty, unstructured data, and we are one of them. But what, we, what makes us unique is our ability to extract what we believe is one of the most difficult forms of big data, which is text. Uh, in many different languages from a wide range of sources. And you mentioned text analytics as a service, which is a big part of our business, but we actually provide text analytics in almost every conceivable form as a service, as a on-prem cloud offering, as conventional enterprise software, and also as the data fuel to power your own in-house text analytics. There's another half of our business as well, which is focused specifically on one of the most important sources of data, which is what we call digital forensics or cyber forensics. And that's the challenge of getting data off of digital media that may be either still in use or, or dead. Talk, talk to me about dead. Can you go unpack that a little bit? Yeah, dead basically means powered off or disabled. And the, the primary application there is for corporate investigators or for law enforcement who are investigating captured devices or digital media. So just to ground, like to, to help people understand, you know, some of the the use cases of someone that would be leveraging uh, some of the the capabilities of of your platforms, and especially the stuff around like entity resolution. Can you talk a little bit about like my understanding? For example, is one use case for your software is obviously 
border crossings, right? Where your your information, <laughs> your your name is going to be looked up to make sure that you should be crossing whatever particular border that you're at. Talk to us a little bit about what's happening there and what's going on behind the scenes with with your software. Like, what is that agent doing, and what's happening behind the scenes uh, that you're? What kind of value are you providing to the government in that in that instance? Border crossings or the software used by border control authorities is a very important application of our software. From a data representational challenge, it's actually not that difficult because for the most part, border authorities work with linear databases of known individuals or partially known individuals and queries. And those queries may be the form you know, manually typed by an officer or it may be a scan of a passport. But the complexity comes in when um, a match must be scored, where a decision must be rendered as to whether a particular query or a particular passport scan matches any of the names present on a watch list. And those watch lists can be in many different formats. They can come from many different sources. And our software excels at performing that match at very high accuracy regardless of the nature of the query and regardless of the source of the underlying watch list. I assume those watch lists may vary in the level of detail around, for example, aliases, spelling, you know, which alphabet they're being printed in. And so part of the value of what your service is doing is, is helping to say, you know, at the end of the day, entity number seven on the list is, a, is one human being who may have many ways of being represented with words on a page or a screen. And so the goal, obviously, is to, to make sure that you have the full story about that one individual. So am I correct that you may get that in various formats and different levels of detail? And so part of what your system is doing is, is actually trying to match up that person and, or give, as you would say, a non-binary response, but, but a match score, something that's more of a gray response that says, you know, this person may also be this person. Something, can you unpack that a little bit for us? Well, your remarks are exactly correct. First, what you said about gray is very important. These decisions are rarely 100% yes or no. You know, we live in a world which is constantly shades of gray, and um, the challenge is getting as close to yes or no as we can. But the quality of the data in watch lists can vary pretty widely based on the provenance and the number of sources. You know, the the U.S. border authorities must compile information from many different sources, from U.N., from Treasury Department, from National Counterterrorism Center, from various states, and so on. And the amount of detail and the degree of our certainty regarding that data can, can vary from name to name. We kind of talked about this when we first were, were chatting about this episode. So... Am I correct when I when I think about like the overall one of the overall values you're you're doing is obviously you're, you're we're offloading some of the labor of doing this kind of entity resolution or analysis onto software and then kind of picking up the last mile with with human right to say hey are these are, are is this recommendation correct well maybe I'll go in and do some manual labor so is that kind of how you see it that we do some of the initial grunt work and then you kind of present a almost finished story and, and then the human comes in and needs to really provide that final decision at the, at the end point. 
And how do you measure, like, are we doing enough of the help with the software or at what point should we say that's no longer a software job to solve, you know, to give you a better score about this person? We think that really requires a human analysis at this. Is there a way to like evaluate or is there a way you think about like, hey, we don't want to go past that point. We, we want to stop here because I don't know, the technology is not good enough or the data coming in will never be accurate enough. And, and so we don't want to we don't want to go past that point. I don't know if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I can't speak for all countries, but I can say that in the U.S., the decision to deny an individual entry or certainly the decision to apprehend an individual is always made by a human. So we design our software to assume a human in the loop for the most critical decisions. Our software is designed to maximize the value of the information that is presented to the human so that nothing is overlooked. Really, the two biggest threats to our national security are, one, having very valuable information overlooked, which is exactly what happened in the case of the Boston Marathon bombing, where we had a great deal of information about Tamerlan and Zohar Tsarnaev, yet that information was overlooked because the search engines failed to surface it uh, in response to queries by a number of officials. And secondly, detaining or apprehending innocent individuals, which hurts our security uh, as much as allowing dangerous individuals to pass. Can you talk about a little bit, uh, <laughs> this has been in, in the news somewhat, but talk about the quote glitch <laughs> and what happened in that Boston Marathon bombing in terms of maybe some of these tools and what might have happened, or not what might have happened, but what you understand was going on there such that there was a gap in this information. I am always very suspicious when anyone uses the word glitch with regard to any type of digital equipment, because if that equipment is executing its algorithm as it has been programmed to do, then you will get identical results for identical inputs. And in this case, the software that was in use at the time by uh, U.S. Customs and Border Protection was executing a very naive name-matching algorithm, which failed to match two different variant spellings of the name Sarnayev. And if you look at the two variations, you know, for any human, it would seem almost obvious that two variations are related and are, in fact, connected to the same name that's natively written in Cyrillic. What really happened was a failure on the part of the architects of that name-matching system to, to innovate by employing the latest technology in name-matching, which is what my company provides. And in the aftermath of that disaster, our software was uh, integrated into the border control workflow, first with the goal of redacting false positives, and then later with the secondary goal of identifying false negatives. And we've been very successful on, on both of those challenges. Was the issue that the 
what what were the two variants? Are you talking about the fact that one was spelled in Cyrillic and one was spelled in a Latin alphabet? And so they weren't resolved as, you know, like they didn't bring back data point A and B because they look like separate individuals. What was it a transliteration? They were two different transliterations of the name Sarnayev. So in one instance, the final letters in the name are spelled N-A-E-V. And in the second instance, it's spelled N-A-Y-E-V. So the presence or absence of that letter Y was the only difference between the two. So that's a relatively simple case. But there are many similar stories for more complex names. For instance, the 2009 Christmas bomber who successfully boarded Northwest Delta flight with a bomb in his underwear again, because of a failure to match two different transliterations of his name. But in, in his case, his name is Omar Farouk Abdulmutalib. So there was much more opportunity for divergent transliterations. On this kind of topic, you, you wrote a, an interesting article called Exact Match Isn't Just Stupid, It's Deadly. And, and you win you talked a little bit about this particular example with the Boston Marathon bombing, but you, you mentioned in there thinking globally about building a product out. Can, can you talk to us a little about what it means to, to think globally? Thinking globally is really a, a mindset and an architectural philosophy in which systems are built to accommodate multiple languages and cultures. And this is an issue not just with the spelling of names, but with support for multiple writing systems, different ways of rendering and formatting personal names, different ways of rendering, formatting, and parsing postal addresses, telephone numbers, dates, times, and so on. A, the format of a questionnaire in Japanese is quite different from the format of a questionnaire in English. And if you look at any complex global software product, there's a great deal of work that must be done to accommodate the needs of a, of a worldwide uh, user base. You're a big fan of uh, Unicode compliant software, am I correct? Yes. Well, you know, building Unicode compliance is the equivalent of building a solid, stable foundation for an office tower. You know, it only gets you to the ground floor, but without it, the rest of the, the tower starts to lean like the one that's happening in San Francisco right now. Oh, I haven't, I haven't heard about that. There's yeah, there's a, a great story. There's a whole tower that's, that's tipping over and it's a, you should read it. It's a great story. Foundation's not big, so soft. <laughs> big lawsuits going on right now. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, not the place you want to have a, not, a not, sagging the, tower not the place, either. but but frankly, <laughs> it's really uh, quite comparable because I've seen some large systems that'll go unnamed where there's legacy technology. You know, people are unaware, perhaps, of you know why it's so important to move from Python version two to Python version three. One of the key differences is Unicode compliance. So if I hear about a large scale enterprise system that's based on Python version two, I'm immediately suspicious that it's going to be suitable for a global audience. And I think you get into some of this from an experience standpoint, inputs, right? When you're providing inputs into forms and understanding what people are typing in. And if it's query form, obviously giving people back what they wanted. 
and not necessarily what they typed in. So we, we all take for granted things like this, you know, spelling correction and not just the spelling correction, but you know, when Google, when you type in something, it sometimes give you something that that's beyond like a spelling thing. Did you mean, you know, X, Y, and Z? So I would think that being informed about what people are typing into your form fields and, and, you know, mining your query logs. And this is something I do sometimes with clients when they're trying to learn something. Like I, I actually just read an article today about Dell.com and the top query term on Dell.com is Google, which is a very interesting thing. So <laughs> I would want to be, I would be curious to know why people are typing that in. Is it, is it really like, People are actually trying to access Google or they're trying to get some information. But the point is to understand the input side and to try to return some kind of logical output. So whether it's text analytics that are providing that or it's name matching, it's being aware of that. And it's sad when you have these gaps like what happened you know, in this border crossing case where a name spelling you know, is responsible for you know, not flagging down these people. I mean, it's, it's, we've put people on the moon and we get something like a name spelling wrong. It's shocking in a way. I mean, I, we, I guess, you know, for those of us working in tech, we can understand how it might happen, but it's, it's kind of scary that that's still going on today. <laughs> you've probably seen many other, are you able to talk about, I mean, I, obviously you have some, some, you know, in the intelligence field and probably government where you can't talk about some of your clients, but are there other examples of learning that's happened that even if it's not necessarily entity resolution where, you know, you've kind of been able to put dots together with some of your platform? Well, I would say the, the biggest lesson that I've learned from you know, nearly two decades of working on government applications involving multilingual data is the importance of retaining as much of the information in its native form as possible. For example, um, there is a very large division of the CIA which is focused on collecting open source intelligence in the form of newspapers, magazines, digital equivalent of those, radio broadcasts, TV broadcasts, and so on. It's a, a unit which used to be known as the Foreign Broadcast Information Service going back to World War II times. And today it's called the Open Source Enterprise. And they have a very large collection apparatus and they produce some extremely high quality products, which are summaries and translations from sources in other languages. But in their, you know, in their workflow, previously they would collect information, say in Chinese or in Russian and then do a translation or a summary into English, but then would discard the original, you know, or the original would be hidden from their, their enterprise architecture for query purposes. And I believe that is, you know, that is no longer the case, but retaining the, you know, the, the pre-translation original, whether it's open source, closed source, commercial enterprise information, government-related information is really very important. So that's one lesson. And, and the other lesson is appreciating the limits of uh, machine translation. You know, we're increasingly seeing machine translation integrated into all kinds of information systems, but there needs to be a very sober appreciation of what is and what is not uh, achievable and scalable by employing machine translation in your, you know, in your architecture. Can you talk at all about the the translation? So we have so much power now with with NLP and and 
what's possible with the technology today. But as I understand it, like when we talk about tra- translation, we're, we're probably talking about documents and things that are in written word that are being translated from one language to another. But in terms of spoken word, and we're communicating right now, like I'm going to ask you two questions. What do you know about NLP? And what do you know about NLP? And those don't have the the first one. I had a little bit of attitude, which assumes that you don't know too much about it. And the second one, I was treating you as an expert. And you know, when this gets just translated into text, it doesn't. It loses that context. Where are we with that ability to look at the context, the tone, the sentiment that's behind that? I, I would I would imagine that's partly why you're talking about you know saving the original source. It might provide some context. You know, like what other headlines were in the paper and which paper wrote it and like are they you know, is there a bias with that page, whatever, like having some context of the, you know, the full article that that report came from can provide some additional context, especially for, I mean, a human's probably better at doing some of that initial eyeball analysis or having some idea of historically what they've, you know, where this article is coming from such that they can kind of put it into some context as opposed to just seeing the words in a native language on, you know, on a, on a computer screen. So can you talk a little bit about that or where we are with that? And, and, Am I incorrect that that we're not able to look at that sentiment, or I, I don't even know how that would translate necessarily, unless you had a you know playing back a recording of someone saying the words. But of course, if it's a translation, you have a translation on top of the sentiment. Now you've got kind of two factors of difficulty right there in getting an accurate, <laughs> you know, translation. So I'm not a you know my knowledge of, of voice and speech analysis is is very naive. I do know this is an area of huge investment and the technology is progressing very rapidly. And I suspect that voice models are already being built that can distinguish between the two different intonations you use in asking that question and, and are able to match those against you know, knowledge bases separately. What I can tell you is that context and nuance are equally important in both spoken and written human communication. And my knowledge is stronger when it comes to in in its written form. And capturing all of the context means that you can do a much better job of the analytics. And that's why I say when we're analyzing a document, we're looking not only at the individual words, but the sentence, the paragraph, Uh, Where does the text appear? Is it in the body? Is it in a heading? Is it in a caption? Is it in a footnote? Or if we're looking at uh, human typed input, and this is where I think your audience would care if you're designing forms or search boxes, there's a lot that can be determined in terms of how the input is typed. Again, especially when you're thinking globally. So we're familiar with typing English, you know, and typing uh, queries or completing forms with the letters A through Z and the numbers, you know, zero through nine. But the fastest growing new orthography today is emoticons, you know, and, and emoji offer a lot of very valuable information about, you know, the mindset of the author. And say, if we look at Chinese or Japanese, which are basically written with thousand-year-old emoji, you know, where an individual must type a sequence of keys in order to create each of the kanji or hanzu that appears, uh, there's a great deal of information that we can capture. So, for instance, if I'm 
typing a um, a form in Japanese and saying I'm, I'm filling out my last name and maybe my last name is Tanaka. Well, I'm going to type phonetically some characters that represent Tanaka, either in, in Latin letters or in one of the Japanese phonetic writing systems. And then I'm going to pick from a menu or the system is going to automatically pick for me the Chinese characters that represent Tanaka. But any really capable input system is going to keep both whatever I typed phonetically and the, the kanji that I selected, because both of those have value. And the association between the two is not always obvious. There are similar ways of capturing context and meaning uh, in other writing systems. For instance, if, if uh, I'm typing Arabic, let's say I'm typing Arabic not in the Arabic script, but I'm typing it with Roman letters, how I translate from those Roman letters into the Arabic alphabet may vary depending upon if I'm using uh, Gulf Arabic or Levantine Arabic or Kyrene Arabic. And say the IP address of the person doing the typing may factor into how I do that, uh, uh, that transformation and, and how I interpret those letters. Oh, and, there's, wow. and there's examples for many other writing systems that are other than the, the Latin alphabet. I meant to ask you, do you speak any other languages or have you studied other languages? I studied Japanese for a few years in high school, and that's really what got me into you know, using computers to, to facilitate language understanding. I just never had the ability to really quickly memorize all of the Chinese characters and the, the radical components and the variant pronunciations. And, uh, you know, after spending just, you know, countless hours thumbing through paper dictionaries, I got very interested in building electronic dictionaries. And uh, my interest in electronic dictionaries eventually led to search engines and to uh, uh, lexicons and, and algorithms powered by lexicons, and then ultimately to machine learning and deep learning. I'm curious, do you, I mean, obviously you need to, I would, I would assume you would need to employ either linguists or at least people that speak multiple languages. So can you talk about like what, you know, one concern with advanced analytics right now, and especially anything with prediction is, is bias. And so I speak a couple different languages. And I think one of the coolest things about learning another language is kind of seeing the world through another context and looking at like right now I'm learning Polish. And so there's the concept of case and they have, uh, you know, these different, uh, it's not just, it doesn't just come down to learning the prefixes and suffixes that are added to words. Effectively, that's what the output is, but it's, it's even understanding the nuance of when you would use that and what you're trying to convey. And then when you relate it back to your own language, you're like, wow, we don't even have an equivalent between this. Like we would never divide this verb into two different sentiments. And so you start to learn what you don't even know to think about. And so I guess I'm, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm asking here is like, how do you capture those things? Because if you have a bunch of, say, in our case, where I assume you're American and, and I am too. And so we have our English that we grew up with and our context for that. How do you avoid bias? Do you, do you think about bias at all as you build these systems in terms of approaching it from you know, a single language? Because ultimately, right, this code is probably written in English, I assume, right? And, and not to say that the code would be written in a different language, but just the approach when you're thinking about all these systems that have to do with language. Where does that come in having integrating other, either people that speak other languages or can you just talk about that a little bit? Bias is incredibly important in in any system that tries to 
respond to human behavior. You know, we have our own, you know, innate cultural biases that you know we're sometimes not even aware of. And as you pointed out, it's it's impossible to separate human language from the underlying culture and in some cases geography and lifestyle of the people who speak that language. So yes, this is something that we think about. I disagree with your remark about code being written in English. You know, the the most important pieces of code today are, you know, the frameworks for implementing various uh, machine learning and deep learning architectures. And these architectures, for the most part, are language or, you know, domain agnostic. The, the language bias tends to creep in as an artifact of either, you know, the data that we collect. So if I were to, say, harvest a million pages randomly on the internet, you know, a very large percentage of those pages would be in English out of proportion to the proportion of the population of the planet who speaks English, just because English is, you know, a common language for commerce and science and so on. So that, you know, the bias comes in from the data or it comes in from the mindset of the architect who may do something as simple-minded as allocating only, you know, eight bits for a character or deciding that Python version two is an acceptable development platform. Sure. And I should say, I, I wasn't so much speaking about the the script, the code, as, as much as I was thinking more about the the humans behind it and and their background and their languages that they speak or or these kinds of choices that you're talking about because they're informed by that person's perspective. So, you know, that but, but thank you for for clarifying. Well, I, I agree with that observation yeah. as well. You're certainly right. Do you have a way because because you guys are you're experts in this area and you you're obviously heavily invested in this area? Are there things that you have to do to prevent that bias, or in terms of how like we know what we don't know about it, or we know enough about what we don't know about, so we we have like a checklist, or we have something that we go through to make sure that we're checking ourselves to uh, to avoid these things, or is it more in the the data collection phase that you're worried about more so than the than the the code or whatever that's actually going to be you know taking the data and generating the the software value at the other end is it more on the collection side that you're you're thinking about or just how do you how do you prevent it how do you check yourself or, or tell a client that you know your customer here's here's how we've tried to make sure that the quality of what we're giving you is good you know we did a b c and d and maybe I'm making a bigger issue out of this than it is. I'm not. I'm not sure. No, it's a. It is a big issue, and the the best way to to minimize that cultural bias is by building global teams, and that's something that we've done. You know, from from the very beginning days of our company, we have a company in which uh, you know collectively the team speaks uh, over 20 languages, and wow. you know have originate from from many different countries around the world and we do business in many different countries around the world that's just an absolute necessity because we produce products that are proficient in 40 different human languages and if you know if you're a large enterprise you know more than 500 people and you're targeting markets globally then you need to build a global team and that applies to you know all the different parts of your organization including the executive team you know, it's rare that you will see an organization that's, you know, entirely 
you know, individuals who are, say, you know, American culture with no meaningful international experience being successful in, in any kind of uh, global expansion. That's pretty awesome that you have that many <laughs> languages going at your in the staff that you have uh, working at the company. That that's cool, and I think it does provide a different uh, different perspective on it when you get people from different. You know, we talk about in, even in the design firm. You know, sometimes early managers uh, in the design will want to go hire a lot of people that look like they do, not necessarily physically, but in terms of skill set. And you know, one of the practices that I've always liked is actually you know getting people that aren't like you that don't think like you in order to kind of intentionally tease out what you don't know. You don't, you know that you're not going to look at the problem the same way they are. And you don't necessarily know what the output is, but you, you, you can learn that there's other perspectives to have. So too many like-minded, you know, (laughs) individuals doesn't necessarily mean it's better. So I think that's cool. Can you talk to me a little bit about one of the, one of the fun little nuggets that stuck in my head? And I think you had attributed this to somebody else, but was the word about getting insights from medium data. (laughs) <laughs> Can you talk to us about that? Sure. And I, I should first start by crediting the, the individual who planted that idea in, in my head, which is Dr. Catherine Habasi of the MIT Media Lab, um, who's also a co-founder of a company called Luminoso, which is a partner of ours. And they do uh, common sense understanding. The challenge with building truly capable text analytics from you know from large amounts of unstructured text is obtaining sufficient volume and if you are a company on the scale of facebook or google you have access to truly enormous amounts of text and i i'm i can't quantify it in petabytes or exabytes but it is a scale that is much greater than the typical global enterprise, you know, or Fortune 2000 company, who themselves may have very massive data lakes, but still those data lakes are probably three to five orders of magnitude smaller than what Google or Facebook may have under their control. That intermediate size data, you know, which is sloppily referred to as, as big data, you know, we refer, we think of it as medium data. And we think about the challenge of allowing companies with medium data assets to obtain big data quality results or business intelligence that's, that's comparable to, to something that, that Google or Facebook might be able to obtain. And we do that by building models that, that are hybrid, that combine knowledge graphs or semantic graphs derived from very large open sources with the information that they can that they can extract from their proprietary data lakes and and using the open sources and using the models that we build as amplifiers for their own you know for their own data is this partly what's behind like you i i believe you, when we were talking you had mentioned a couple of companies that are building uh, products on top of you, uh, Diffio, I think was one, and Tamer and Luminoso. So is that, is that related to what these companies are doing? Yes, it, it, it absolutely is related. Luminoso in, in particular is using this, this process of 
synthesizing results from their customers' proprietary data with their their own models. The Luminosa team grew out of the team at MIT that built something called ConceptNet, which is a very large semantic graph in multiple languages. But actually, Dithio as well is also using this, this approach of federating both open and closed source repositories by integrating a large number of, of connectors into their architecture. So they have access to web content, they have access to various social media firehoses, they have access to proprietary data feeds from financial uh, news providers, but then they fuse that with internal sources of information that may come from sources like SharePoint or Dropbox or Google Drive or OneDrive, you know, your local uh, file servers, and then give you a single view uh, into all of this data. Awesome. This is, uh, I don't want to keep you too long. I, this has been super uh, informational for me, learning about your space that you're in. Can, can you tell us uh, any, any closing thoughts about, you know, advice for product managers, uh, analytics practitioners? We talked a little bit about obviously thinking globally in some of those areas. Uh, any other closing thoughts about delivering good experiences that are, you know, leveraging text analytics, things to, other things to watch out for? Any, any general thoughts? I'll close with, with a few thoughts. One is repeating what I said before about, um, about Unicode compliance. Um, I mean, the fact that I even have to state that is somewhat depressing, yet it still isn't taken you know, as, an, as an absolute requirement, which it, it is today, and you know, yet continues to be overlooked. Secondly, thinking globally, anything that you're building, you've got to think about a global audience. I'll share with you an anecdote. You know, my company uh, gives a lot of business to Eventbrite, who I would expect by now would have a fully globalized platform. But it turns out that their utility for sending an email to everybody who signed up for an event doesn't work in Japanese. And I found that out the hard way when I needed to send an email to everybody that was signed up for our conference in Tokyo. And that was very disturbing. And I'm, you know, I'm not uh, afraid to say that you know, live on a podcast, they need to fix it. And, and you really don't want customers finding out about that during a time of, of high stress and high pressure. And there's just no excuse for that. And then my third point with regard to natural language understanding, and, and this is a really incredibly exciting time to be involved with, with natural language or human language because the technology is changing so rapidly and, and the, the space of what is achievable is, is expanding so rapidly. But my final uh, point of advice is that hybrid architectures have been the best and continue to be the best. There's a real temptation to say, just throw all of my text into deep neural net and uh, magic is going to happen. And that can be true if you have sufficiently large amounts of data, but most people don't. And therefore, you're going to get better results by using hybrids of algorithmic, simpler machine learning architectures together with deep neural nets. That last tip, can you take that down one more notch to when you said the quality, I assume you're talking about a level of quality on the back end, or not literally the back end, but the, the tail end of, of the technology implementation, there's going to be some higher quality output 
what can you translate what a hybrid architecture means in terms of a better product at the other end? What would be an example of that? It's hard to do without getting too technical, but I'll I'll try and I'll try and use some examples in English. I think the traditional way of approaching deep nets has very much been take a very simple, potentially you know, deep and recursive neural network architecture and just throw data at it, you know, especially images or audio waveforms. Uh, you know, I throw my images in and I want to classify, you know, which ones were taken outdoors and which ones were taken indoors with no traditional signal processing or image image processing either before or after. Because in the image domain, my understanding is that, you know, that kind of purest approach has delivered the the best results. And, and that's what I've heard. I don't I don't have first interest firsthand information about that. However, when it comes to human language in its written form, there's a great deal of traditional processing of that text that boosts the effectiveness of the deep learning. And that falls into a, a number of layers that I won't go into, but just to give you one example, let's talk about what we call orthography. The English language is relatively simple in that the orthography is generally quite simple. You know, we've got the letters A through Z and uppercase and lowercase, and and that's about it. But if you look inside, say, um, a PDF of English text, you'll sometimes encounter things like ligatures, like a lowercase f followed by a lowercase i, or two lowercase f's together will be replaced with a single glyph to make it look good in that particular typeface. And if I take those glyphs and I just throw them in with all the rest of my text, that actually complicates the job of the the deep learning. And if I take that FI ligature and convert it back to, you know, separate F followed by I or the FF ligature and and convert it to back to FF, my deep learning doesn't have have to figure out what those ligatures are about. Now, that seems pretty obscure in English, but in other writing systems, especially Arabic, for instance, in which there's an enormous number of ligatures or Korean or languages that have uh, diacritical marks, processing those diacritical marks, those ligatures, those, those orthographic variations using conventional means will make your deep learning run much faster and give you better results with less data. That's just one example, but there's a whole range of other text processing steps using algorithms that, that have been developed over, you know, over many years that simply make the deep learning work better. And, and that results in you know, what we call a hybrid architecture. Got it. So it sounds like taking, as opposed to kind of throw it all in the pot and stir, there's some, well, maybe I'm going to cut, cut the carrots neatly into the right size and then throw them in the soup. Exactly. <laughs> so there's some more prep uh, that, that can go into having a better you're kind of helping the system do a better job at its at its work. That's right, and it's it's really about thinking about your data and you know understanding something about it for you know before you throw it into the the big brain. Exactly. Cool. Well, great. Where uh, where can people uh, follow you? I'll, I'll put a link up to Basis uh, in the show notes. But uh, are you on on Twitter or LinkedIn somewhere? Can we? Where can people find you? You know, LinkedIn tends to be my preferred uh, social network. I just was never very good at 
summarizing complex thoughts into 140 characters. <laughs> okay. um, so that's the best place to connect with me. Um, basis.com okay. will tell you all about basis technology and rosette.com is our text analytics platform, which is free for anybody to explore. And to the best of my knowledge, it is the most capable text analytics platform with the largest number of languages that you will find anywhere on the public internet. All right. Well, I will definitely uh, put those up in the show notes. Great. This has uh, been been fantastic. I've learned a ton and uh, thanks for coming on Experiencing Data. Great talking with you, Brian. All right. Cheers. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.